Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This podcast does contain some description of events which some listeners may find distressing. Actum, actum, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Selma van der Peer. And I have to say, this is a particularly special edition of the podcast because Selma was uh, is from a Dutch Jewish family, was brought up in Holland. Then suddenly the war came. She lost most of her family, her father and mother uh, and her sister, in the Holocaust. She herself was a member of the Dutch resistance, was eventually caught um, and eventually transported to Ravensbrück, which she survived. It's the most extraordinary story of survival. And, and here she is, you know, all these years later, standing in, you know, sitting in front of me. I can see her now. Um, Selma, thank you very much for coming on and, and welcome. And um, gosh, what a story you have. And I thought we might just start at the beginning, if that's all right. Uh, you know, your childhood and, and growing up and, you know, who were your who were your parents? And you were you were you moved around a bit, didn't you? But but mainly Amsterdam. I was one of four children. Uh, I had two old elder brothers, one nine years and the other one 11 years older, and a little sister, six years younger than me. So a good old gap. Were... Yeah, <laughs> like the Queen had. <laughs> yeah. And um, seems to happen with women sometimes. You know. We lived in, well, the family comes from Alkmaar, which is a small town in the north of Holland. My father was brought up with his grandparents because in those days women got many babies and his mother he was the eldest one and um, when the second one arrived after a few months um, they he was taken by his grandparents for the time being but it turned out they kept him forever and he was brought up with his, he was brought up and he never forgave his mother for that really? so he had quite, although he had a very nice upbringing yes um he he didn't uh, like it very much right later on when he became older and um his grandparents were very religious very religious uh, orthodox jews not as you talk now about orthodox but in those days in holland most people who were jewish were orthodox jews means they were religious that's all and um his then he was a very clever little boy and his grandparents wanted him to become a rabbi. And uh, he was very good at singing and performing when there were family festivals or neighborhood festivals. And um, so they sent him, after he'd been to a good secondary school uh, and a college, they sent him to a Jewish college. But he didn't believe in all the things they said. And he was quite resistant for it. In the end, they took him away from there, and he wanted to go on the on the stage, which he did. He became an uh, actor and singer and comedy writer. And he had mixed fortunes, didn't he? I mean, like many actors, you know, there were, it was feast and famine a little bit, wasn't it? In the beginning, he was a great success. Mm. But uh, 
we, we had times that we were very poor, very up and down. Yes. I can remember my, my childhood being very much so. I mean, we were very poor one time and very well off the other times. <laughs> and so hardly anybody knew when we were poor because we were always well-dressed anyhow. They, 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 it sounds like they were very loving parents, though. And I, mem- uh, I, I remember you, you saying that your father was very was very liberal for the time. Very, very liberal man, yes. He believed in uh, in women being free. And he had, because in those days, in those very religious days, women were just for the household, you know. Yes. And the household there was very much like it because his grandparents had an, uh, a woman living in, and a housekeeper to look after them, who brought up actually my father most of the time. And um, so he was well, he was used to quite a good household, but he didn't agree with it at all. He was very much... In those days, and that was in the beginning of 1900, he uh, he was born in, nine, in 1889. So in the beginning, the social socialist movements came round and round, and people started to be opposing lots of things, you know. Mm. And he was a very free-thinking man. Yeah. He didn't believe in most of the very religious parts, mm-hmm. and he said he wanted to go on the stage. And he was very... Um, when he got married to my mother, um, who they were friends, he, my mother's parents were friends with his grandparents playing cards, and they met in... My mother used to t- pour the tea, and my father was playing he was quite good at that and um that's how they met and and so um they married in 1911 and um my eldest brother was born that same year in december nine exactly nine months afterwards (laughs) and uh, yeah (laughs) and um my father thought that women should do what they liked and not just only do the household. But most of the women, of course, were in the household in those days. Yes. And um, my mother didn't work, and neither did her sisters, or the, the ones who worked were her brothers. They were usually quite big families, of course. And you weren't, re- and you weren't really, you weren't particularly practising Jews, were you? I mean... Not at all. Not no, at all. because when my father was sent to the Jewish college to become a rabbi, he didn't agree with what the teachers told him and he was sent off a few times for being so opposing right. and he kept on not wanting the same thing he didn't believe in some of the stories which the religious people believe in and um so that's that's why and then when he went to amsterdam to that college that jewish college my mother went there too she wanted to meet him and that's where they became friends and then he didn't want in the end his grandparents re- realized that their money and time was wasted and so he was allowed to leave and he went on to the stage and he was quite well known in the beginning and um, did a lot of things and stood performed in a lot of theaters in Holland went up and down because in those days you had no agents no you just relied on uh, being in a cafe and people directors coming there to employ you Anyhow, I was born, so we lived in Amsterdam after having moved from from several places. And um, 
My father thought when I was born in 1922, it would be very good for the children to be at the seaside. So he told my mother to go to Zandvoort. Zandvoort is the seaside town like Brighton is to London. Yes. Seaside town to Amsterdam. And then when we moved back to Alkmaar, because my great-grandmother, my father's grandmother, was being ill, although she was in her 90s, like I'm now, hmm. and... Um, in the end died, and we moved to Amsterdam because my father thought it was better for his work to be in the capital rather than in a small town. And when we were in Amsterdam, I was born. By that time, traveling through Europe and so on, doing quite well. But um, in 1940, of course, um, just when he was doing very well, um, managing as well, managing theaters and other and performances, um, my eldest brother came one morning, May 1940, and said, it's war shook me. I was asleep, six o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, and said, wake up, wake up, it's war. And I said, oh, you all let me sleep. But I could hear the others already up as well. So I, and that was terrible. He had to be back. At, he was in the merchant navy by then, because the last year before the war, when England was already at war with Germany, Holland was still neutral, but everything was mobilized. And so my eldest brother was in the merchant navy, and my young brother was in the army. And um, my eldest brother had to be back at his, Louis had to be back on the ship at six o'clock. So my father decided to take him there, and we all went with him. Well, not my mother, but I did. And we never, and for a moment, thought of going with him on the ship. Never tried, even. Isn't One didn't amazing? know, really, what was going to happen. Can you remember some of what you were thinking? About? I mean, were you completely shocked that the war had begun, or, or was this something that... Had... Yes, we all were very shocked, because I'd heard all those stories about the First World War, you see, when mm. my parents were in charge of some of the um, refugees from Belgium, and so and. Dutch Holland was really neutral and um, had quite a comparatively good life compared with every other country yep. who was in, at war. Holland wasn't at war. And so we all thought, everybody thought, well, most people thought, that Holland would be neutral again, you see. So it was a great uh, shock yeah. when the Germans invaded the Netherlands. And the, the Dutch fought for about four days. That's right. And then they had to capitulate. And then the, my younger brother was stationed in Zeeland, that's near the Belgian border and the sea, and um, in Middelburg. And um, he had, with his unit, he had to go to Belgium. And then when Belgium capitulated, he had to go to France and then to England. So both my brothers really turned up in England. Yep. turned out to be in England late. But we didn't know that. And we were in a terrible state because we thought after four days in the occupation, the Germans might have caught my brothers, you see. So we were very right. nervous about Yeah, yeah. It. There was no post. So when did you hear that your, that your brothers had made it safely to England? Well, um, two years, almost two years, in the end of 1941 or the beginning of 42. Really? Not we till had then? a letter from the Red Cross, yes. From the Red Cross, well, there was no information at all, you see. No, and amazing. from the Red Cross, a letter from David, my younger brother, asking for something. 
and uh, saying that he was, not that he was in England, but that he was all right. Yeah. But my brother, my elder brother was even later. Yeah. Because I remember my father sending me to one, with with that note, to one of his girlfriends, his best girlfriend, to tell tell her that Louis was alive. Amazing. So all that time you just have no Mm. idea what's happened to them at all? Well, then the Germans started to make laws against the the Jews. Yes. And um, that's that's when the trouble all started. Up till then, it was not too bad. I mean, I think you had to register in... January 1941. But before then, I mean, life sort of continued reasonably okay, didn't it? Reasonably, yeah. Yeah, the laws only came in by that time, yeah. The Germans were very, very clever, you see. They wanted the Dutch on on their side and they tried not to be too difficult. But of course, it was impossible because they made laws and so the Dutch didn't like and um, so everybody went in the resistance, um, resisted. But for a Jewish family like yours, it it was a very much a sort of gradual process, wasn't it, of kind of reducing your rights, reducing your, you know, getting worse and worse and worse. Unbelievable, actually. You couldn't believe it, you know, that these things were going to happen. Yeah. Um, you knew, of course, that something like that had happened in Germany, but we weren't German, you see. And so um, that it was a terrible state, and especially when, when the bad things started. All my friends were Christians, really, Catholic and Protestant, and mentioned it, and it was different. You never talked about religion at all. We all knew we were uh, Catholic or Jewish or Protestant, right. but you never talked about it. You just knew that one went to church and the other one not, you see. And that was it. But when, of course, the rules came out, then it suddenly was a different question. You have to register in early 1941, but it's it's not until the following May of 1942 that you're having to wear those yellow stars of David on your on your chest. Yes, my father had to register us, of course. All the Jewish people had to be registered. At the, at the Jewish Council. Well, it must have just been so extraordinary to think that this was this is happening in you know you, you've lived this perfectly ordinary life, sort of you know of a loving family, minding your own business, and then suddenly the Germans are there and starting to really make life just so incredibly difficult for you. It must have been it must have been very frightening and uncertain. I I, I would imagine very frightening, very disturbing. Yes. It disturbed our lives, of course, really. Our yeah. calm lives, yeah. and um, when that happened, and you know the Christians weren't allowed to come and visit you anymore, Jewish households. So that right. was the beginning of it all. Right. And um, my father said, "Oh, great will," which is the, the friend who she she always did during the war, is the one I wrote the little note to yes. from the train. You know, in the beginning of the book. Yes. And. Um, she was very good, but most of the friends didn't dare, of course, because they would have been sent to concentration camps if they would. So yeah. they didn't. Or one or two did once. But um, that was another thing that was very bad. And you were not allowed to visit them either, Christian households. So that was oh, a great thing, it's, actually. It's it's so hard to sort of fathom today, you know, looking back on it and thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's you know... The, 
I suppose you're just sort of sitting there waiting for something worse to happen, aren't you? I, I mean, was it was it a bit like that? I mean, did did you sort of wonder where it was going to end? Well, of course, my father knew and we had heard stories about what happened in Poland and Russia with the programs at the end of the 19th century. So we knew what could happen, you know, like that. But you didn't think it would happen in Holland. Somehow you thought because you were Dutch and in Holland, a thing like that didn't happen in Holland. And everybody thought it would happen. But so it's unbelievable now that you thought that, but that's what happened. Yes, of course. Well, I mean, but I remember there's that line in the uh, that you said your father said, and they said, "Well, what do you think will happen to us in 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 the east?" And he said, "I expect we'll be turned into mincemeat." And it's it's really chilling, isn't well, it? Well, my my uncle my uncle asked this this question. Yes, That's when right. what do you think is going to happen? And he said, "Well, the germ." He said, "Yes." Tint, tint of mincemeat. Although the, he said also that the Germans were too clever. They will first not kill them, but first let them work because they'll need it. And there, he was wrong there, of course, although some did work, but most of them were just gassed and killed. So your father was, you know, the roundups begin in, in I think, July 1942, which is sort of roughly the same time that they began in France as well. I was first in uh, June on my birthday. Right. I received a card, which was a call-up card, People were sent. That was when you were registered. And you were called up to work in work camps. That was the clever thing of the Germans, you see. They talked about work camps, not death camps. We didn't know. I was called up and my father said, no, 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 you're ill. So he gave me um, chocolates, which um, made me go to the toilet and um, called the doctor. And the doctors wrote a little note to give me free from going to the East East Europe to work. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a week. You couldn't get longer than a week. And after the week, I was called up again. And I went to a station in um, nurse uniform. A friend who had been a nurse had a uniform, nurse outfit. And I was told that if you were in an occupation that was necessary, you were you were free. And um, so after I stood there for an hour, I had my story ready that I was being a nurse and everything. But then the woman who was sitting there with a German officer standing behind her said, no, 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 and sickness um, can't become a social work. So you go tomorrow morning to the central station, which was the station where you had to uh, registered to go to East Europe. So I thought I better go to my, I was very disappointed. I had to go to the to a firm because I had started work then, finished school and started work with a firm, a paper firm in the South Wall and Jewish people. You only could work for a Jewish firm and they could only employ a Jewish person. And so I went to them, to Mr. and Mrs. De Jong, and they were in the garden talking to their neighbor. And uh, I was going to. T- I was telling them what had happened that I couldn't come to work the next morning, but had to go to East East Europe to the work camp. And the man they were talking to next door was a German immigrant, and he had a fur factory. And he said, uh, "Why don't you come and work with me in my factory? You will be free because 
fur factories are free. So that's what I did. The next morning I went to work with him. We're having to take a short break now, but we'll be back after this. Welcome back to our conversation with Selma van der Peer. You had some luck, didn't you, Selma? I mean, to manage to avoid the first call-up on your your birthday and then to get the post in the fur factory. And um, then later on, when my father was called up in October 42, um, I used to send Mm. him parcels. And one day I had sent a parcel and I came from, from the post office and I came on the corner of the street to go to my firm to work. And I had a funny feeling in my tummy. And I turned round yes. and went to my hiding place where I was staying with my uncle. And um, that same day in the afternoon, we heard that all the fur factories had been collected by the um, by the German SS and sent to Auschwitz. So I escaped again. It's absolutely extraordinary. I wonder yeah. what that was, just a, just a sick sense that something was afoot. I used to say I'm very, I was very lucky, but a friend of mine, she's German, born after the war in Germany, very nice friend of mine, um, she said to me when she heard the story and said, no, Selma, it isn't luck. You knew your instinct, you knew when to say yes or no, when to turn around or not. And maybe she's right. Yeah, amazing. And that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary why why some manage to make it through and others don't. It's just it's yeah. it's incredible. But 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 that that particular day is extraordinary, isn't it? That sixth sense that kicked in and told you not to go is is amazing. Call him my uncle, Uncle Jacques, but he was he was married to my mother's younger sister who was dead by then, and uh, he was also a colleague of my father. That's how he met, how they met. You see. Uh, how he met my aunt, and uh, I was staying with him because he was married for the second time. The first, uh, my aunt died, and he was married to a Christian woman, Tante Tini, and so he could stay, and I stayed with them. This was dangerous for them, really, to have me in hiding, you know, but it was very nice. And I looked, me meanwhile, I looked after my cousin's children because his wife was in the hospital expecting well, having uh, TB and expecting her third child. And I was looking after those two children, cooking for them and dressing them and things like that. And um, that was when I, for the first time, met the resistance movement, although I didn't know what resistance movement was in those days, you know, and it wasn't in existence, really. Um, But didn't you, yes, sir, the one who had lent me the, the nurse uniform asked me to go to the hospital. And if it was a Jewish hospital, they could only go to Jewish hospitals. And um, on the day the, the baby was born, the third baby was born, and take the baby and give it to her. She was in the corridor somewhere. And not, take, not let the nurse take the baby to go back to the baby room. So that's what I did. I went to the hospital and took the baby from the mother and to, to put him back in the room with babies, but gave him to Dinja and he survived the war. He was brought, he was taken to a Christian family, Catholic family in the south of Holland, in Limburg. And his brother and sister, the two I looked after, also were saved 
All three children were saved. And one of them is still alive, actually. So that was, that was the first, yeah, that was the story too. Because that school, that little nursery school opposite um, the theater, where all the Jews were kept in those days before being sent to Germany, the little theater had all these little children and hundreds of these children have been saved in suitcases and rucksack to be taken to families, really hundreds. And so that is very marvelous from all the people, all the workers who did that. It's really amazing. And the story in itself... So how did you start to meet people who were in the resistance? Yeah, I was in hiding, therefore, and um, it, it went wrong in Amsterdam. Something went wrong with the people who had the, the addresses. And so uh, Wim Storm, a doctor, took me to Leiden. And in Leiden, staying then with a girl called Antje Holthaus, who was head of the genealogical department in the Leiden hospital. Leiden is like Oxford here. The hospital is like And um, she and her friend, who was the head of the laboratory in the Leiden hospital, they had that flat or part of the house, really. And I was staying with them. In those days already, the doctors of the Leiden Hospital had formed a group which um, was taking Jewish families into hiding. They had already found families. and so, so they were already in existence, but I didn't know that. In the evening, these doctors often came to visit us and have a meal with us. And so I started to get to know them. And in the, after a while, they, in the beginning they didn't, but after a while they talked about what was happening during the day, how they brought this person there and how, how difficult that one had been and so on and so on. And uh, I heard those stories. And then by that time, in 1942, the end of 1942, the laws already had changed for Dutch boys and men had to go to work camps as well. In, in case they, they, the boys who had finished um, secondary school and wanted to go to university had to sign a loyalty letter, which if they didn't want to, they would send to Germany to work camp, which they didn't want to, and then they went into hiding. So it was and the same with men. If they were out of a job, they had to go to Germany to work, and if they didn't want to, they went into hiding. So, by that time, there were not only Jewish people in hiding, but also many Christians. So, a lot of foot tickets and ID cards, because they all had to have different ID cards um, in case they were stopped. A lot was needed for that. And when these doctors told one evening how difficult it was because all the boys were um, either arrested already or could or not or were in hiding themselves, I said, can I help? And they said, oh, yes, please. And that's how it started. I first filled in just um, envelopes, envelopes with some illegal paper because newspapers weren't in existence anymore, were not allowed, except one. But we had a lot of illegal papers with all the news from England, which was taken on the radio and so and then printed, but illegally, of course. And so I was distributing those to start off with. But after a while, I was asked to do other things, to be courier work, actually. But, but Sam, before we go to that, where, so where are your mother and sister at this point? Dave and my father went to the work camp in the north of Holland. Yes. Um, 
Yes, the, back in October the, the previous year, 42. When the men went there, they were the same evening, instead of the work camp, they were straight away transferred to the concentration camp in the north of Holland, Westerbork, which was a Durchgangslager, to go to Auschwitz. My father was still there. That same evening, I heard all the neighbors and other people screaming, and the Germans were collecting, the Germans and the Dutch police were collecting the wives and children of these men, because it wasn't only my father, it was all the other men too, um, who had been arrested. And um, all these women and children were thrown into lorries. And I said to my mother, when we weren't collected, this was lucky, um, that evening, but I said to my mother the next morning, we'll have to do something because they may come for us tonight or tomorrow. And that's how I've, I went to a friend and she gave me an address and it turned out to be an insurance man. <laughs> and uh, he gave me an address to go into hiding. First of all, he gave me, an, he said, tomorrow there'll be a woman coming for your mother and sister. And they took them to a hiding place in Eindhoven. And they stayed there for a year until they were betrayed in 94, July 1943. And were taken to Westerberg and then to Auschwitz. Well, they were to Sobibor, weren't they? I went, and I went into hiding as well there. Not there, but yeah. somewhere else. But, but separate from them. But you did have, you did get to see them one more time, didn't you? Yes, several times. Because when I was in, yes, because when I was in, uh, in hiding in Leiden and I was starting to do curious work, then the person um, who used to bring them the money and the food cards and everything uh, said, well, you can do it now. And so they gave me the address and I went every month uh, oh, to right, see okay. my mother and stayed there and shared the bed with my mother. So, Selma, tell me, tell me about this first courier job that you had to do. Uh, you mean the one that they stopped when they stopped me in the, at the exit yes. in Leiden? Yes. Well, I had Anne Lange, who was another uh, resistance worker, and she um, came to Central Station in Amsterdam, and I had to go there too. And she placed a big suitcase in the luggage rack opposite me and said, keep an eye on that. And so as it was quite late and we had curfew at 8 o'clock, um, I didn't dare to go. In the suitcase were illegal papers for several towns in the south of Holland. And I didn't dare to go there. So she said, you better stay the night in Leiden in your own bed and go tomorrow morning. So when I got to Leiden, which was quite near Amsterdam, I went out of the train and I saw that there was a control, a checkup at the exit. I didn't know what to do. There was no other exit and no other way of getting out. And the train had already gone. And so I went to the exit with my very big, heavy suitcase. And there was an, uh, a conductor stay, staying there and a an, uh, German SS man. And uh, he said, uh, what's in that suitcase? And I said, underwear. Because I didn't know. Really. I knew there was paper, but I didn't know exactly what was it. And so um, he said, open. So I fiddled with the locks because I didn't know the locks. I didn't know the suitcase, really. And so uh, the locks were very difficult to open. Finally, I opened the locks and opened the suitcase. And I thought, I thought I'm finished, you know. But uh, he said, go. God, it must have been absolutely terrifying, wasn't it? I was trembling, trembling outside, outside the station. I was really trembling. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So much that my friends uh, in the flat said to me, what happened to you? You look terrible. So that's when I told them. <laughs> I bet you that could was my first scarcely experience. believe you'd got away with it. Yeah, but it wasn't your only close shave, was it? And and and, and no, then you I've have to go to Paris. And then there was the time on the train, wasn't there, where the suitcase goes missing? The one on the train, yes. That was also the, um, the same same suitcase. Suitcase with uh, five big parcels with um, newspa illegal newspapers ripped up. At this time, I was in the morning, so I went all the way to The Hague and Rotterdam and got there and wanted to go to the toilet. And I did go, and when I came back, Anne had again placed the suitcase in the luggage rack. And when I came back to my what I thought was my carriage, there was no suitcase. And I thought, what happened to it? And it wasn't there. But the woman sitting opposite me, a Dutch woman, said, have you lost your suitcase? So I knew I was in the right carriage because my seat was opposite her. And I said, no, no, no. And But when we stopped at the next station, she opened the window and shouted outside, uh, this girl has, got, has lost a suitcase. It's stolen. And so there was a German officer out. German officer, I could have killed her. There was a German officer outside, and he said, Rouse, out. So I couldn't do anything but go out, and um, the train had stopped. And I was on the platform, and he said, what's in the suitcase? And I said, underwear. And he asked a few questions, and so. And then luckily for me, he was called away, and the train started running, and the conductor also started to run to the train to show that the train could go. So I ran to the riding train, jumped on, and went off. And when we came to Dordrecht, which is a bit more south, and I had to change there, going to the south of Holland, although I didn't need any more, I was going outside of the train, and the conductor said to me, are you the girl who lost the suitcase? And I said, yes. And he said, what was in it? I said, underwear. Oh, I think I found it, he said. So he came with a very small suitcase, which wasn't mine at all. And uh, he opened it up, and thank God there was underwear in. And so I went out of the train with somebody else's little suitcase. I, my suitcase was oh, stolen. That's amazing. My suitcase was stolen by somebody. So you never got to the bottom of what happened to it? Well, yes, we did. Wow. After the war, yeah, we were told just amazing. The, suitcase, the suitcase was it's in, in one of the books up to somebody. The suitcase is, was found in the water and in the river. And um, with all the papers in it, because when the, we laughed, actually, Anne and I, because she came in there, I sent a telegram to her. In those days, she still had telegrams. And um, we laughed because she said those the men who, or women who stole the suitcase must have had the shock of their life when they opened the suitcase and found all these legal papers in it. And, um, yeah. we, we, Surely the lady who'd been sat opposite you must have seen it being taken. Because she said to you, you know, what, what well, happened to your suitcase? It, yes. Have you yes. lost your suitcase? She probably thought it was that person's uh, suitcase. I don't know. Amazing. <laughs> but you had to go. You had to go to Paris as well, didn't you? Yes, I didn't want to actually. I thought it was very I'm dangerous. Not surprised. And I, didn't like, I didn't like the idea at all. But they said the two boys are in prison, and we need the papers. We need the stamps because they needed German. Later on, of course, this was early, but later on, the stamps as well and themselves. I mean, the resistance in those days, they didn't have anything like that yet. So, um, and you had, a, and you had a new identity as well, didn't you? By this time, oh yes, I had that already some time when I moved to Utrecht. 
Yes, that was yes. a little baby who died when she was uh, a year old. And um, she was called Margrethe van der Kuyt. And the resistance movement asked me, would I be the guinea pig to start a real identity card? And they got it through the, from the people. By that time, we had people working with us, assisting us, people who were working in the archives and in the council offices. And uh, so that man who was working in that office got me the ID card of the baby born or died, but um, Margarete van der Kuyt. So from that time onwards, which was 1943, I was Margarete van der Kuyt, and which saved me. And, and Salma, when you're on these long trips, like the, like, like the one to Paris, for example. But you must just be on edge the whole time, aren't you? Are you just? Are you just? They checked in the train, of course. They're always checking. The, they were always checking the train, but my papers were good enough for that. Obviously, I'm just trying to picture myself being you in 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 that time, and you've got false ID. You are actually Jewish. You're going to Paris in a different country, also occupied by the Nazis. And suddenly some guards are coming along the train. I mean, your heart must be pounding thousand to the minute, isn't it? It was. My tummy started aching always. <laughs> Don't forget, I was doing it many days. Uh, the checkups were all the time there. So I was getting used to it. It was, it was almost like a daily job, going to the office, you know, and doing your job. I did have uh, in the train itself, when there was a checkup, I was a bit scared. But I knew after a little while that my paper, my ID card, was very good, actually. Turned out to be very good also when I was arrested, when my boss was arrested and yes. I was with him. And I was, and was sent to Amsterdam to the headquarters there. I, that's when I thought they have a machine and can find out that I'm not really my guy. Because you were you were interrogated by the head of the SD there, weren't you? Yeah, Lagos. Yeah. So just to, just to, sorry, just go go back a moment. So how did your arrest? How did that come about? I mean, you just happened to be in in the house at the wrong time, didn't in you? Yes, room. Yeah, at the wrong time. He was arrested in the train, and somebody who somebody else, Franz Herzog, had another resistance worker, had uh, promised to make me some bookshelves because I had my suitcase with all these illegal papers under my bed, which was very dangerous. And so he said, I'll make you some bookshelves with um, secret hiding places. And that, that day, just that day, after month and month, uh, Jan, another colleague, uh, resistance worker, came with the, suitcase, with the shelves and said, I've got yourselves. And so we were, he was just showing them to me how it worked, how it opened and so and where. When the front door went, and I said, oh, there is the boss. There was Bob Yasser, Peter, was the name by then, between two Grüne Polizei. We called them Grüne Polizei because they were in green uniforms, German police. And they came, they came upstairs. I tried to run up to the second floor because we were on the first floor. And, um, but they got me back and they asked who I was and so on. I said, I was just a girlfriend. And they said so too. We had arranged that, that if anything happened, because it could always happen, of course, I would just be the girlfriend. So that's what we said. And I said so too. And you, and you stuck to that story throughout your interrogation, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. 
until until everything wasn't possible anymore. I kept on sticking to it, even in in um, imprisoned, whether they believed it or not. <laughs> well, it seems that they must have done. Yeah, I was taken to the um, prison, and there was there was a guard, a lady, an old lady guard, and she said to me, "Have you got a diary?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Tear it up and put it through the toilet." And I said, "There's nothing. There's nothing in it." She said, "They always find something. Do as I tell you." And I did. I went to the toilet and tore it up and flushed it. <laughs> and she was right, of course. They do. They they could get things out of people, even if there was nothing to be got. And um, so that was it. And then the next day, I was taken to. Well, it was terrible there because there was another girl whose boyfriend at that moment was shot while I was there, and she was in a terrible state because she was also condemned to death. But they let her live actually as a Nacht und Nebel prisoner, which means that nobody knew where she was. Yes, these were the ones. So, so this was a decree, wasn't it, from from Hitler that that people should just disappear. With no grave, yeah. nothing, no, yes. no one ever find yes. anything about them ever again. And most of them Horrible. did. Most of them disappeared. Yeah, but I saw her again in Sweden, so she survived. Thank goodness. Um, next morning, I was taken between in the in the, that first day prison, um, in between two Grüne Polizei again, um, very fat ones. I could hardly sit <laughs> um, to Amsterdam, and there. It was infamous, was the Euterpestraat. And in the Euterpestraat was, um, Strate Street, was a school, a high school, and the Germans had taken, the, the headquarters of the German SS had taken that over, and it was well known for torture and, and interrogation. And I was taken there. And when I got out of the car with the Germans, um, there was a man standing on top. There, were high, there was a high um, staircase going to the front. And there was a man standing on top of that. He said, what is that? My guard said, oh, uh, the girl has nothing to do with it. And, and I thought, oh, lovely. You know, my story is all right. But then he said, and it was Lagos, the head of the German police in in, Nidl, in Holland. And he said, glaub ich nicht. I don't believe it. And my heart sank in my shoes then. I thought, oh, my God. I didn't know it was Lagos yet, but I later on heard. But I was taken to the big room, this entrance, and uh, put in a big chair, comfortable chair. And my shoulder back was taken from my shoulder. And they went off. It was then that I thought maybe they have machines here where they can find out that I'm not Marge van der Kuyt, you know. That's when I thought about it. I was very relieved the other times, but then that's when I was scared. But I didn't show it. I just smiled, and there were boys, men sitting on that side, row behind machine uh, types, typewriters, and on that side were a load of women type secretaries, and I just smiled from one to the other, insisted on smiling. <laughs> And um, more than I do now. Um, and then after about half an hour, but I was scared. Oh, I was very scared, very scared. Then after half an hour, about half an hour, they came back with my 
hand back, and they gave it back to me. And so I thought, oh, well, it must be all right. The papers must have been all right. And uh, thank, thank the resistance movement for doing it. <laughs> and um, then I was, taken to, I was taken to the big prison and put in a cell there with several other women. And uh, every day was, was an uh, interrogation. This was not very nice. But I kept on saying I don't know anything. I'm just a girlfriend. Until one day, the German... Oh, first of all, the German said, do you speak Do you speak German? I said, no, I did speak German because in Holland you learn the three languages, German, French, and English. Um, but I said, no. So he called in a Dutch policeman and he had to translate it every time. One day he offered me a cigarette and I saw that they had been in my suitcase because my father always used to, in the, during the war, always used to put the dates on the food, which was that I do that now as well. I mean, most of us do that now in the freezer. And well, then I had done it because I had two ration cards, one to give to my um, hostess, because you had to do that. You, you, you couldn't go to cafes or anything like that. And one... I took with me if I stayed with a farmer or people who I had to visit. And um, but that mean, meant that I also had two lots of cigarette card, cigarette tickets. And uh, so I had a lot of cigarettes and I smoked like mad. And um, so he came and offered me a cigarette and I saw it was a packet with my date on it. I knew that being in the thing. And he said, you better tell us the truth now because uh, the Führer doesn't kill women. Well, I knew better. I mean, I knew several people who had been shot. But um, I just said, I'm, I'm the girlfriend. Well, what is all that in your suitcase? Well, I'm keeping that for my friends. They asked me to keep it for them. And um, so I kept on staying that all the time. We had to arrange that, you see. And so I did. But I was um, condemned for duration of the war, imprisonment for the duration of the war. Well, thank you very much for listening to that first half of my chat with Selma van der Peer. The next half will be available next Thursday.